Welcome. I'm Dr. Vinay Prasad. I'm a hematologist oncologist, and I'm associate professor of medicine at the University of California, San Francisco. In my professional life, I see patients, I teach trainees, and I do research in healthcare policy. This is Plenary Session. Plenary Session is a podcast at the intersection of medicine, oncology, and health policy, and you're listening to Season 3. On this week's episode... On today's plenary session, I've got a lot in store for you. I've got Alistair Monroe. He's a pediatric infectious disease expert in the UK. He's been following the COVID pandemic closely, and he's going to talk about risk of spread in children and schools. Next, I've got Stefan Burrell. He's a professor of medicine at Johns Hopkins University Bloomberg School of Public Health, and he is a card-carrying field epidemiologist, and he has a thoughtful take on what does public health mean in the age of COVID-19? What did we do right, and what did we do wrong? You won't want to miss this episode. Stay tuned. If you like this podcast and want more content, follow me on Twitter at vprasadmdmph. Check out the YouTube channel, vinayprasadmdmph. Patreon backers will get access to the slides for lectures I give on Plenary Session. Want to hear from us? Email us your question at plenarysessionpodcast at gmail.com. All right, I'm back in Plenary Session, joined via Zoom by Alistair Monroe. Dr. Monroe is a practicing clinician. He's a pediatric infectious disease specialist, and he is currently focusing the majority of his time on infectious disease research in pediatrics. He's working on vaccine trials. He's doing important work with the folks at Oxford on the Oxford vaccine. Uh, Dr. Monroe, it's a pleasure to have you here on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me on, Vinay. Long-time listener. Pleasure to be here. Oh, that's great. You're a planner, a secret planner. That's great to have. Oh, it's no secret. <laughs> an, o- an open and proud planet, yeah. Oh, thank you, thank you. Well, it's a pleasure to have you here. Um, you know, of course, uh, what caught my eye uh, was a recent editorial you had in JAMA Pediatrics, um, but I think there's just a number of related issues that it might be helpful to talk through with you, given your expertise in pediatrics, given your expertise in infectious disease, and your work on the vaccine trials. And so I thought we might just you know, just hit these hit these in a row. Um, maybe the last thing I want to talk to you about is the vaccine studies and what what we're going what's going on so far. Um, but the first thing I want to talk to you is about the policy choices we're making, particularly the choices around children. Um, you had the opportunity to write the editorial uh, for this publication that came out in JAMA Pediatrics. I wonder if you might walk listeners through that particular publication and what it showed, um, and then we can talk. We can go from there. Yeah, absolutely. So it's a really interesting paper. Um, It comprises several parts and it was trying to look at some different facets that contribute to how children might be involved in the transmission chain of COVID. So obviously it became clear really early that in terms of um, clinical disease, kids were were pretty much spared. You know, it's it's, it's in general uh, a mild disease and illness uh, in kids really comparable to other respiratory viruses. So then the question was, okay, well, if they're not getting sick, how much are they spreading it? Mm -hmm. And uh, that was what this paper really tried to look at. And so the first part of it is looking at susceptibility. So obviously to spread infection, you've got to catch infection. Right. And um, there's loads of contact tracing studies out there that are looking at, well, you know, say you've got uh, an infected person who comes into a home, uh, who else gets infected in that household in particular? Because it's a fairly consistent environment and more or less, you know, the people in that environment are getting similar or, or equivalent exposure. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. Um, And across these studies, what they found was that Um, If you pull them all together, in general, children are getting infected about half the rate of adults uh, in these studies. 
So given so that's probably that, yeah, given that someone in the home is sick, it's looking at the rate of contagion among household family members. That's right. Yeah. So I mean, they look at all contacts together, pooled contacts, sure. which includes sort of household and external. But I that's see. quite heavily biased because obviously during lockdown scenarios, children are confined. To, to the home and so you're always going to find a higher you know, we, we expect to find proportionally a higher rate of infectious contacts amongst children because sure. they're going to be more close contact than other adults you meet at the grocery store or or wherever so it's even more interesting to look specifically at household contacts and they found that children were becoming infected less frequently than adults within the same household as an infected uh, person um, and so that was probably the main important finding from this paper was this meta-analysis finding that children were roughly half as likely to become infected as adults, given similar or uh, equivalent exposure. So now um, we know. Then, yeah, go on. Go on. And then, well, they just looked at a couple of other things, including uh, so some school studies. And at, at the time that the paper came out and they did the meta-analysis, there was uh, only a very small handful of studies looking at infected children in school, but mm -hmm. they generally found fairly limited uh, evidence of transmission from infected children within schools. And then looking at seroprevalence studies as well, and um, the rates at which children you know, had evidence of antibodies compared to adults, which uh, in general, depending on the size of the study and the methodology, the, the better and bigger uh, sort of well-performed studies uh, usually show that children have uh, lower rates of, of evidence of previous infection than adults as well. I see. So, so these sort of uh, complementary strands of evidence all kind of point in, 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 we have to say just a good direction, which is thankfully, um, children who have the most years of life ahead of them, uh, thankfully, if they're infected with SARS-CoV-2, it appears they are more likely to suffer mild disease. They're less likely to die from SARS-CoV-2. And shall we make a comparison to seasonal influenza if we talk about kids less than 10? So this, so uh, of children less than ten infected with seasonal influenza versus SARS-CoV-2, which poses the greater threat to their mortality? Yeah, I mean to be honest, it's pretty hard to make really strong comparisons sure. because the rates are so low in both. Yes. So obviously, yeah, there's a lot of noise. But I mean, it's comparable. It's a, it's a it's a really comparable risk in the UK per year. You know, we'd expect you know maybe fifteen. 20 deaths in uh, children from influenza uh, and, you know, of children under 15, I think we've had about six deaths in the UK and we've been one of the most hard hit countries, uh, you know, famously in the world. And, and I think all of those children had quite profound uh, underlying comorbidities. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you, we're, we're, we're certainly not talking, it doesn't look any more risk than seasonal flu. It right. And, 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 and let's be a little bit more clear on the age. Would you say that extends as high as people under the age of 25, for instance? That's hard because the root there, there's a U-shaped gradient to yeah. risk in children. Yeah. So um, in terms of disease severity, what we see is children under the age of one, probably more likely to be hospitalized, probably more likely to go to intensive care. And again, that risk rises in later adolescence as well. So once you're over the age of 15, that, that risk has crept up quite quite a bit. Um, and again, the, the relative risk is obviously higher in those groups, but the absolute risk yes. in, in all children does still remain really, really low. And still in, in young adults, I think the risk is still, you know, extremely low of, of mortality or severe illness. I think that that's a that's a very fair summary. Um, so so that's one piece of good news, which is if they were to become ill with this virus, the risk of that catastrophic worst outcome is low. Uh, perhaps 
on par with seasonal influenza in, in this age group, particularly those less than 16 uh, who are attending school. Um, the second piece of good news I guess you're offering is that if a household family member is ill, they're much less likely to spread it to children than they are to fellow household adults, fair to say. 50% less that's likely. What, that's what this Yeah, is. that's what that's what the evidence says. I mean, this is uh, this is really good news. <laughs> this is re- you know, this is really good news because the fear was that like like flu, kids were going to be the super spreaders. So right. we know that for influenza kids are the reservoir of disease. So if you do the same studies in children, um, you know, looking at household contact studies, you, the youngest children acquire it the easiest. And we know that they spread it the most. And this is where, you know, this image of these sort of snotty coughing, of uh, you know, um, sort of plague <laughs> machines uh-huh. comes in. And, uh, you know, we, we've all got that, uh, that, that sort of mental image in our head. And that is true for flu. And that's why, you know, vaccine campaigns do tend to target younger children as well as the elderly, because we know they're the ones uh, who are carrying and spreading the disease most. And that's primarily... Um, I think thought to be a feature of reduced immunity. So they've had less exposure. Sure. So they're going to be catching it easier than, than older children or, or adults who have had the flu maybe you know, a couple of times or been exposed and have a bit of immunity. And if that was true for kids for this as well, that would be, that would be bad news because then you know, we'd really have, be having to focus um, non-pharmaceutical interventions, so policy interventions on kids in order to yeah. uh, reduce spread. Um, and given that, you know, kids are obviously the ones least likely to suffer severe illness, um, if we were also then having to uh, apply the most measures to them, that would that would really be um, a disaster. So the fact that relative to adults, children seem to be less important vectors, that's really, you know, that's really great news. And, so, and, was, and it was a big surprise, I think, to many people. I think it's been sort of a, a remarkable surprise of this whole of this whole pandemic is that uh, is that is that point you're making, and and we're going to come back to the policy implications for, you know, exactly what you articulated. Should this be the place where we put the squeeze on 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 viral suppression? Um, let's talk a little bit about in this study um, the people who were sick in the households. I would presume they're predominantly adults who are sick. Do we know if if a child is sick in a household? What's the propensity that that child? Uh, if they were in that, if they were to contract it, what's the propensity for them to infect their parents, for instance, or someone else in the household? Yeah, that's been really, really difficult to find out. And part of the reason is, well, I mean, there's a few reasons. So one is that has been really infrequent, or or it's been infrequently described. So if you look at studies that have tried to determine relative infectivity or infectiousness of of an index case by age. You'll look down the chart and you'll look at the arbitrary age brins of, you know, 10 years, five years, whatever. And you've got, you know, there'll be a thousand 20 to 30 year olds and 1500 30 to 40 year olds. And you'll get down to the kids and you look at kids under the age of 10 and there'll be 20. Mm. And you'll just say, whoa, whoa, that's that's a big difference. Right. Um, and, and this is in all of these studies. There's, right. there's just so many. So far fewer children have been identified as index cases. And why, and you know, even why that is, is is unclear. Is that because children are getting infected less easily, which does seem to be the case? Yeah. Is it just because you know kids weren't allowed to go out of the house basically, and so they weren't getting opportunities to catch it, or is part of it because we think 
kids are probably more likely to be asymptomatic yes, than adults. Yeah. So they don't get And if that's the case, they're not going to get pinned as yeah. an index case because right. that's determined on symptom chronology. Who right. got sick first? Right. And so if a kid never got sick, you know, you'll never find that they were an index case. So so there's there's really low numbers, and that's the first big problem. Now the next big problem, and this is a big problem, is that when there's a really famous study came out of South Korea that hit all the headlines, New York Times, everywhere else, that, that looked at this exact question and said, whoa, look at the 10 to 19 year olds. They're infecting just as many people as adults, if not more. Mm-hmm. You know, they're, wow, they're really yeah. infectious. You know, what does this mean for school opening? And this was uh, using national database uh, information from South Korea, right? Now, the same data, just looking at children was published separately. And what they did in that paper was they, they took a closer look and they said, well, let's look at all the infected contacts of these children who had SARS-CoV-2. But let's also look, well, how many of them actually shared the same initial exposure as the index case oh, child? Oh, interesting. Of course. Yeah. 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 So there was like um, 41 secondary infections from about 250 kids. And of those 40, there was one case that didn't share the Ooh. same initial exposure. Oh, so so break that. So so somebody listening, what what this really means is you've drawn an arrow from the kid to someone else, and what this analysis is showing is that the head on that arrow it might be wrong, and in fact they both got it from the same source. Exactly. Different third and the thing is yeah. that yeah. there's no way of knowing. There's I no mean, way of you, knowing. You, right? You know, if you found infection in a kid and then you found it in their mum or their brother or whatever then intuitively you've got to think, well, actually, if if they were both at the same place at the same time with the right. person who made the kid sick, right. then he, <laughs> the most parsimonious explanation is probably that they both got it at the same time. Yep. Um, or, you know, they both had the same exposure. But the thing is that you just can't tell. That there's no way of knowing in which direction that infection happened. From and, the third even, party to the mum and the kid, or from the third party to the mum, then the kid, or from the third party to the kid, then the mum. And, and, yeah. and yeah, you don't know which way these arrows are going. No, you don't. And, and it's impossible to tell. And the problem is, is this is a major issue with trying to um, establish uh, causality and in infection with kids because they don't travel alone. And particularly so far during the pandemic, they, they've really not been allowed out on their own. You know, they haven't been to after school clubs or schools or uh, or whatever. They've, they've just been going with their mum and dad or, or staying at home. And so there's this huge degree of shared initial exposure um, that then makes it so hard to determine, well, hey, you know, how many of these kids uh, were really infecting other people? And then the last point I'll just make is that obviously the other big problem is that the selection criteria for a kid to be an index case is based on them being symptomatic. Yes. And we're saying well, actually, maybe a lot fewer kids are symptomatic yes. than adults. Yes. And so you're choosing, you know, selecting out for right. these studies, the kids who have the highest burden of symptoms, who are probably the ones who are coughing and sneezing. Right. and who highest are probably viral load, the, potentially. Yeah. yeah. Who are probably the most infectious. Yes. So, you know, there's, it's been a really difficult question to answer. And... And, and and some people have told me, but I'm not entirely convinced it's doable, but that genotyping, if we did sequencing on the coronavirus in these patients, you would get some sense. But one possibility is you sequence and you get the same sequence in everybody. What are you going to do with that? 
Well, exactly. I mean, that it, for the household studies, we've got shared exposure. Yeah. yeah you're you're going to get the same genotype because I, I they've think... probably got it from the same person right, or they gave yeah. it to each other. Know, right, so where it will be more useful yeah. is for a school outbreaks. Yeah, school Right. So Broader one of the really population. famous... Yeah. Yeah. So one of the really, uh, you know, famous, well, two of the really famous studies that, that, that looked at large outbreaks within uh, uh, school-aged kid populations were um, a secondary school in Israel, which is, you know, famously, um, you know, had issues with, with um, spread within schools. And then there was this famous uh, Georgia summer camp study, yes. which, you know, has sort of scared everyone a little bit. Yeah. And it will be in those type of situations where it would be really interesting to do genotyping because, well, what happened? Did one kid come in sick and give it to a hundred kids yeah. or yeah. did you have so much community spread at that time that actually you've had 20 kids with different viral strains come in and just give it to you know one or two people within their class right you know that, that's where that sort of information you know a higher resolution of information will be more interesting because there's been a really point, really yeah. strong correlation uh, in studies in the uk for example with the rate of community transmission and the uh, number of children affected in, in school outbreaks, which have all been pretty small. So I want to, I think this has been very helpful because I think what, you, what you're doing a good job of articulating is what is known, what is not known, what is merely feared about transmission and viral spread among these kids. It's really important to talk about this because there are lots of things one can do to combat a pandemic. Um, one can close bars and salons and casinos and strip clubs. Uh, one can stop major sporting events and coliseum events and large Political rallies, you can stop those kinds of things. And one can go the extra mile and take kids under the age of 16 and stop their school, full stop, and have them participate in Zoom theater and other such delusional activities that we think may educate them or mostly torture the parents who have to hold them down to do the, the Zoom activity. I mean, I, I don't know what purpose it's serving. It's, it's the illusion of doing something. Uh, I mean, one, <laughs> yeah. you know, so one, one can do these sorts of things. And I guess the really qu important question is, there's two parts of this huge equation I think we're kind of balancing. One is, what's the delta viral spread? What's the delta years of life lost from COVID by additionally stopping the schools? What are you going to gain from it? And then the other thing we're going to talk about is, what are you going to lose from it? What are you going to lose for the child's welfare, their well-being? And, and, and then the next thing to talk about is, in whom are you deploying the intervention? In the United States, we have a very caste-based system. Nobody wants to call it that, but that's really what it is. It's a system where if you're wealthy, you probably already pulled your kids from public school in many places. There are a few really good public schools, but a lot of parents pull them out and put them in private school. And many private schools have their own sets of rules to run, and they have financial incentive to run, and so they're going as hard as they can, full steam ahead. Um, and, and I think we see that a lot in colleges that need that revenue. Um, public schools, they cater to um, a lot of a lot of wealthy kids too, but also the disadvantaged among us, and and those have preferentially been ground to a halt. So I guess I think you've done such a nice job of articulating what is known and what is not known about viral transmission, and that helps us weigh the potential upside. Um, there are also some I think very limited, but they do exist studies that ask what happens among countries when they close schools versus not closing schools on rates of viral spread. You want to you want to comment about those studies a little bit? These kind of almost ecological studies, although, you know, yeah. Yeah, I mean, the, uh, the, the best example that springs to my mind, and, you know, you're almost a pariah now if you mention it, but um, <laughs> Sweden. <laughs> up in... Yeah, that hell, that, <laughs> yeah. Ha that failed state hellscape. No, yeah. <laughs> yeah, um, but sweet, I mean, there's whatever you think about uh, the Swedish response, there's yeah. something you can learn. 
Um, and I think that's something that's been lost in, you know, it, it, I know I speak to lots of Swedish people on Twitter who are a bit fed up with um, being a political football. Yes. But, you know, there, there's a lot you can learn. And I think the most interesting thing you can learn from them is about schools yes. because they never closed schools for children under 16. Yes. So they did have remote schooling and stuff for, for older children, but they, they implemented really basic infection mitigation measures and kept schools open for, for children under 16. And what we found is, you know, they, Sweden had a bad first wave. And the reason for that is probably actually the, the timing that they implemented their precautions. So they, they, you know, there's this myth that Sweden did nothing. Is actually they probably put into place nearly as many measures as a lot of other countries. Sure. Most of them were voluntary, but but yeah. you know they they did social distancing, they did working from home, they you know closed universities and made them all remote access and. Um, you know, encourage people not to go out and, you know, people, footfall to restaurants and pubs and bars and everything like that fell, fell tremendously. Exactly. But right. they did yeah. it, but they did it really late. Mm. And that is probably one of the main reasons why they suffered such a big first wave. Mm. But what you can see is if you look at the curve of their pandemic, it came right down mm -hmm. and it tracked very similar actually to uh, the UK's wave who, uh, you know, we also had a really bad uh, first uh, wave, probably also due to acting late. Mm. But Sweden brought the pandemic under control without ever closing schools, mm -hmm. without ever, you know, really instituting many stringent measures at all. Uh, for me, I think that's really informative because what that, you know, obviously not everywhere is Sweden, not everywhere has the same political structure or the same societal uh, values and things. So, you know, we're, we're not all Sweden, but what you can say is, well, hey, School closures are not necessary or mandatory to control the pandemic, to drive case numbers down. Sweden did it without closing them. And then you look at some other schools who, you know, uh, some other countries who did really well at uh, suppressing spread like Denmark. They opened schools within a month or so of, of shutting down within, you know, six, six to eight That's weeks. Right. Yeah. And, th and they were really smart. They opened with the with the youngest schools first. So primary schools, children under the age of 10. And they did it really cautiously and nothing happened. You know, there was no explosion of cases. Um, the Netherlands opened quite early. Switzerland opened quite early. And none of these places actually saw any surge in cases off the back of, of school reopenings. And actually, most places in Europe where cases really started taking off, it was the end of the summer holidays when no kids were in school uh, in school anyway. So, you know, what, what does it tell us? Well, it tells us that really broad brush stuff like... You don't have to close schools to suppress transmission. And opening schools doesn't necessarily mean you're going to propagate a second wave or, or, or increase spread. So I, I think that's informative. I think that's, I think that's really helpful information. I think that's very helpful. And I, um, and I, and, 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 and I guess the, the, the one thing I want, I, I'm getting a little bit curious about is, um, once the schools were opened or places where schools were opened, what was the the zeal with which testing was being performed among the staff? And and I think because that, that's also a variable here. If you're only going to test teachers and staff, if somebody feels ill, um, you know, you, 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 you sort of raise the bar for when you're going to be catching cases. 
Um, a number of places here are are really vigorously testing. So they they open the school and then they're testing everyone, you know, with, with some with some frequency. And then they have halt rules. So if anyone tests positive, they're going to close the school for two weeks. Um, how did Sweden navigate that? My understanding is they didn't have halt rules. They didn't have these sorts of things. They just let it run. Um, and, and presumably they were just they, they weren't doing any surveillance. They were just kind of picking up cases if they were to present with illness. Yeah, they yeah they they had a pretty. Uh... It, they didn't have a very aggressive testing regime. I mean, I'm going to, I'm, I'm now speaking as someone, you know, really secondhand. Sure. This is just information that I've had from, from casual discussions on, or on Twitter and from some people I know who live in, in Sweden. So, um, please anyone in Sweden, if I make a mistake, do forgive me. This is not, I'm not pretending to be an expert, but yeah, I mean, because I know this because they were criticized yes. for not having very aggressive yes. testing and for only testing people with symptoms. And yes. they were saying, well, you don't know how much spread is going on in yes. schools because you know, the kids aren't getting the symptoms and you're only testing them if they get symptoms yes. or if they get sick. Um, and so, you know, it didn't appear like that. Was, you know, I'm sure, I'm sure transmission happened within schools, you know, to, to some extent, but um, it wasn't picked up uh, to any great degree. Um, and yeah, they were only really testing people if they got sick. I know in Switzerland, they, uh, I believe they have a policy where they don't test anyone under the age of 12 mm. for, for COVID, mm -hmm. uh, which, mm -hmm. you know, uh, I'd question whether that's uh, perhaps right. too far. To <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if that's entirely necessary to, yeah, to not test it. anyone at all. Yeah. But um, we saw that when, you know when yeah. they when schools were were uh, cautiously reopened late spring, that regardless of that, that um, you know there was no explosion in, in cases uh, off the back of opening schools now. Yeah, and I think I think that draws a a, a difficult to talk about, but an important distinction between. Um, the outcome you really want to avert and what you want is to be able to open schools without an explosion of bad cases, people who are sick and who are going to hospitals and who feel unwell. And if you were to open schools and there is to be some level of PCR detectable transmission that you're not surveilling for aggressively, um, but maybe it's happening, maybe it's not happening, you don't see it and nobody's coming down with severe illness and, and they're not a rise in symptomatic cases. I guess I would say, and it's somehow controversial to say, but I don't think it's that controversial, that that's not necessarily that bad. Um, you know, if no one is getting sick and no one, nothing bad is happening, um, and maybe there's some viral PCR titers that were, there's some PCR uh, 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 tests that would have been positive had you had you jammed that swab somewhere. Uh, that's not the end of the world. I mean, that's that's that to me is a is an acceptable an acceptable outcome if there's nothing bad happening downstream. Now, of course, if there is something bad happening downstream or if it's going to happen in the future, then, of course, you know, we want to we want to curtail that. But if it's really not, and, and I think the experience in Sweden suggests that it might not be, it might not be um, as bad as you think. There's uncertainty there. Um, yeah, I think yeah. I think what what something that people have really struggled with um, trying to get to grips with throughout the whole pandemic is that there's two elements of risk. That, yes. And one of them is is your personal risk. Yes. So what is the risk to me as an individual um, of catching and, and getting sick? And then we, you know, we want to try and apply that to, to a kid going to school. So for the kid themselves, we know that, you know, in general, even if that kid's got, you know, uh, uh, other comorbidities that make them more prone to respiratory viruses, actually, it's probably the risk is still on a par to other respiratory viruses that we would, we would send them to school for most of the time. The other thing to consider is, of course, the, the risk of household members. So, you know, I do think there's something to be said for having a think about if you're, uh, you know, a an older child yeah. who's being cared for by a vulnerable adult, you yes. know, so yes. by a grandparent who's yes. got, 
you know, comorbidities and there's a smoke and that sort of stuff. Well, you know, that needs a bit, bit more of a think about, depending on, you know, what the level of transmission is in your area. You've got to think about what, you know, what are the risks of me catching it? And if, you know, if, if the, the community transmission rates are low, that's perhaps not such a big deal. But I know obviously you've got places in the US where it's kind of just people are just letting it do its thing and <laughs> it's, it's you know it's 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 all over the place and you know i think that's a that's a that, that's an individual based risk assessment and then past the individual there's the population risk and i think that's where um countries including my own and definitely it seems like you guys perhaps uh, in the us you you really need a a direction that's coming from the top down to say this is the this is what we're trying to achieve yeah this is the goal yeah. of handling this pandemic yeah. so countries like new zealand have gone we're not having any right. and whatever it takes we're not going to have any covid here we're gonna, lift the drawbridges we're not having any here yeah absolutely squash it up we'll get a single case lock down the city you know yeah. it's not it's we can we can keep it out and then you've got countries like sweden who have said well, look, we're going to just put in the measures we think are sustainable, sustainable that seem yes. to be a balance between, uh, you know, yes. uh, people getting infected and other poor public health outcomes. Uh, and we're not going to tell anyone what to do because we trust individuals to, you know, to make their own decisions and behave responsibly. Um, and, you know, they know the direction they're going in. I think what's really hard is if you're in a country where the government's just sort of saying, well, we're just going to do a few things and we're, we're not really sure what an acceptable level is or what the trade-offs are for, yeah. you know, that that kind of level. And, you know, are we just trying to suppress it a bit? Are we trying to, you know, if you, if you don't know what your, what your country, what your policymakers are trying to achieve, I think it's quite hard as an individual to make a, a judgment about your behaviors informing systemic risk that's a you know because I, I don't want to be the person to contribute to that's a great transmission point. getting so out of hand that right. we can't protect old people you know that there's so much covid going around that it gets into care homes that it gets to you know granny and grandpa and it gets into you know places where it's gonna where it's gonna kill lots of people uh, you know which is what happened the first time sure so that's the that's a really difficult decision to think for people to make regarding schools is well, my kid's going to be fine. I'm probably going to be fine. How much is this going to influence what happens in the wider community and case numbers going up? And I think hopefully what we've found from the evidence so far is that compared to other stuff, schools are not a huge deal. You know, school, I don't think you're going to get any more bang from your buck from closing schools than closing anything else. And when you're looking at the trade-offs, as yeah. you say, let's of, talk about that. Yeah. Yeah, I want I mean, to ask the you. Yeah, yeah, what are what are what what are we losing when we close schools? You're a pediatrician. What what uh, what are the trade offs? And this uh, speak, and this speaks to your commentary, which is consider the kids really your subtitle. Absolutely. Almost, yeah. I mean, I think the the first thing I want to say is the trade offs for closing schools, unlike closing almost anything else, cannot be compensated by the government. So if you close bars and restaurants or universities and they lose revenue. The government can cough up, you know, yes, they'll have to borrow. Yes, you know, there's going to be a deficit, but the government can pay wages. The government can, you know, subsidize loss of earnings and that sort of thing. If you take a kid out of school, the government is not going to post them some education. The government is not going to post them additional life chances. Mm -hmm. The government isn't able to 
you know, uh, address the fact that that was probably the only hot meal some of those kids were going to have during a day, mm -hmm. that the teacher was the only person who was going to notice that kid coming to school with a bruise. Mm -hmm. The sort of social and educational benefits that a school provides are gone when the school is closed. There's mm -hmm. no substitute for that. And we can argue about how bad it is that schools are having to be the places that plug those gaps. Sure. But, that, but it doesn't change the fact that they are, they are the and there is no yeah. substitute. Yeah. So for the duration that you close schools, no one is noticing the child who's getting abused. No one is making sure that the kids whose parents can't afford to feed them are getting fed. No one is making sure that the, the you know kids from difficult backgrounds who are bright, who could go somewhere, are getting the education and the uh, investment that they need to make something of their future. And we know from studies around the world in places, you know, not as fortunate as, as where we live, that education is the way to bridge that gap. That education is the way to um, reduce uh, those discrepancies in society. And that all time lost in education is just in heart, is just widening that gap, widening the attainment gap. And that is, you know, that is people's future. That is people's forever. That time doesn't come back. Um, and for me, that is that is a heavy price to pay. It's a heavy price to pay. And you don't know what you're paying it for because we're not necessarily clear that it's going to change the arc of a pandemic anywhere uh, 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 beyond all the other things we can do and we should do first. Um, one of the things that I get when, when I started, uh, you know, I did a lot of digging in this subject and I sort of reached a similar conclusion that you have reached. I, I come to it from putting all the, the sort of categories that I wanted to, to collect information on and started filling in the gaps. What do we know about viral spread, the Delta to the kids, the Delta to the teachers? What do you know about the kids' outcomes and these sorts of things that are these sort of very difficult social fabric things? One of the things people pushed back on me on and they said is, well, you know, you're always a stickler for really high levels of evidence. Um, there, what's your very high level of evidence that it's safe to open schools? And I said, I think you've got it backwards. Opening schools is not the intervention. Closing schools is the intervention. That's the intervention that you ought to show that the, the downsides that we know are destined to have. I mean, we're supposed to be running schools. That's the default. You want to close schools to get an extra handle on the pandemic. I understand that there is a pathophysiology reason why you want to do that. Empirical evidence has since emerged that suggests that that reason is vastly overstated and perhaps very different than other respiratory viruses. Um, so now, what evidence are you offering that this closure, this intervention, which is closure, closure is the intervention, opening is not the intervention, closure is the intervention, and you say closure above mitigation. You can't mitigate it. You can't do things to mitigate it. You got to go all the way to closure. The burden is to prove that that's better than mitigating or, or, or letting it run. And I, I, so I think it's an inversion, a in, total inversion of, of sort of principles of evidence. I don't know. What do you think about that? Yeah, I, I agree. I think we, we've gotten ourselves into a really difficult position. I mean, you've spoken about this before and how there are, you know, there are things where you're never going to get yeah. that degree of certainty, yeah. you know, p policy intervention, like foreign policy interventions, yes. you know, or what, what happens if I put up this trade barrier or if yeah. I start a Assassinate war? Assassinate this uh, general from <laughs> yeah. Iran. Yeah, right. What's going to happen? Right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah we're never going to know. Yeah. We're never going to know the counterfactuals yes. and, you know, all of the studies that have tried to unpick, uh, you know, the effects of school closure are all, 
uh, you know, they're all dreadful, really, yes. because we di- everywhere just closed schools at the same time as everything yes, else. I know. And at the same time that everyone changed their own behavior anyway. Yes. So it, it is it is basically impossible to look back at what happened and see what affected school closing on its own have. I, and I think it was probably, I mean, that, I, many people who, uh, who I speak to disagree with me about this, but I, I feel like it was probably the right thing to do because, you know, we were staring at a train coming towards us, I think, at the beginning. And, you know, when all else failed, you, you know, you, you do, you just do whatever you think is probably the safest thing to do on balance. So given what you know or expect, you know, the risk, the, the, the risks of keeping schools open, if that was going to, you know, be like throwing a match on a, on a, a haystack, that, that was probably bigger than the risk of closing schools in the first instance. Sure. Now, I think, I think that, you know, so we wrote a paper at the end of April. Uh, published in um, one of the BMJ journals, Archives of Disease and Childhood, when some of the early evidence came out that, you know, there was a couple of studies that were suggesting, hey, kids are catching this less easily than adults. And then there was a few population screening studies in Iceland where they could barely find any kids that are infected and the same in Italy. And the kids weren't getting sick. And, you know, I was I spoke to a few people and we said, well, you know, the kids aren't getting sick it doesn't look like they're spreading this like they spread the flu you know that at some point the schools are closed and actually the harms of that are outweighing yes. the probable possible benefits which which are you know the harms we know they're set we know the harms of school closure and then what we didn't know was what was the benefits and actually the benefit was just slowly eroding down it looked like you know less and less like it was a really vital intervention so yeah at the end of april we said we need to start thinking about getting schools open, you know, with mitigations and, yes. you know, infection preventions and careful monitoring. But, you know, we need to start thinking about opening schools and other countries did it. The UK made it early efforts and it was, uh, you know, resisted, but, you know, we got bipartisan support over the summer because I think everyone, you know, both our political parties have said now the, the official policy is schools are the last thing to close and the first thing to open. Yeah. And we've got that from both sides of the, of the, of the political aisle, which I think is, is a is a is a good thing but it's you know you can't demand high level evidence when the harms are accruing because it's all it all has to be done on the balance of what are the harms that we know and then we have to make our best guess uh you know at the at the benefits of of keeping them closed or the risks of of opening them it's all about the balance i agree absolutely and i think yeah i think and 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 i mean and to the people who want better evidence and i put myself in that camp i guess i'd say we squandered some opportunities in this country to do as i think margaret mccartney very nicely wrote in the bmj randomized control cluster randomized control trials of non-pharmacologic interventions uh in this pandemic so you know, I think for, for those of us who would have wanted better data, I think we it was a missed opportunity to do randomized cluster, randomized control trials of non-pharmacological interventions, as I think Margaret McCartney eloquently wrote um, in a post on the BMJ website, um, including randomizing school reopenings or, or different strategies within schools. Um, we could have talked all day about the masks and how uh, equipoise was poisoned by people who claim to be proponents of evidence-based medicine, um, I think who are proponents of fear-based medicine and 
narcissist-based publication. I don't, I don't know what they're really proponents of, but they're not proponents of evidence-based medicine as I, as I conceded, whether or not they were present in a 1990 meeting or anything like that. Um, so, so, I mean, I think those were missed opportunities, but I mean, we could talk all day about that. I want to talk a little bit about um, the vaccine clinical trials because uh, you play a role in this. Uh, Oxford, AstraZeneca. Um, in the U.S., we have draft guidance from FDA that says um, we want to see in a vaccine efficacy trial evidence of a point estimate of reduction in, in, in symptomatic COVID transmission of 50% and a lower bound of the 90% and a lower bound of the 95% confidence interval that is above 30% so that we at minimum in the 95% confidence interval, um, we, we would be a clearing a 30% reduction in symptomatic COVID cases. These studies are not powered uh, and not designed with the primary endpoint of hospitalization or death. Um, I actually think that's okay. Um, you know, as much as I like to see those endpoints, I think that's okay. Um, these are, this is one of the few times where um, you do have to make trade-offs and it is um, incredibly plausible to believe that if there was less COVID virus out there, there'd be less hospitalizations and death as a sequela. And, and we may not necessarily have to wait for the study to accrue those events. Um, how is your trial going? What are you learning? Um, and, and are you randomizing kids? Because my understanding is that not a single one of these studies is randomizing kids under the age of 18. Um, and, and so, yeah, go on. Yeah, I mean, I've, it's, I've never been involved in anything like this trial, um, first of all. I mean, the, the people who are, I mean, yeah, I, I play a fairly small role. You know, I'm just one of the, one of the senior fellows uh, helping uh, run the trial at our site. But the guys who are really, uh, you know, driving this forward, particularly from Oxford, when we got the timelines um, back in early, uh, when was it? I think it was, it must have been late late March, early April. Yeah. And we saw what they were trying to achieve in the next few months. Oh, man, it scared me silly. It was, yeah. oh, we were just like, whoa, how are you going to, how do you think you're going to achieve this? But they, you know, it was really, really aggressive um, recruitment, pushing through the phase one and then into the phase two, three, and man, they did it. And they, they, they pulled it off in an amazing way. And I've, you know, what it's taken us um, in uh, Southampton in the UK to, to uh, keep up has been, has been huge. Yeah, I've got some amazing colleagues who have, you know, just been working all day and all night, seven day weeks to, to get patients in, to get follow-ups done and, and all of that sort of stuff. So, I mean, it's, it's been crazy. You know, I do, I do clinical trials um, as a living for the last few years and never experienced anything like this. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the buy-in, the public buy-in has been incredible. Yes. So obviously one of, the, one of the things we really struggle for, uh, you know, I, I mainly do phase one studies and recruitment is tough. Yes. <laughs> Just, you know, trying to, trying to get people into phase ones uh, is it, hard because by... By definition, there's, they're doing it altruistically, really, because there's no benefit to them for taking, taking the medicine per se. Um, but, you know, we've just been, we've been overwhelmed by people uh, wanting to volunteer, wanting to come and do their bit and, and help out. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's been amazing. And the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine, is that mRNA based or is it a, is it a different... Um... Strategy. It's uh, it's Chadox one, so it's a it's a chimpanzee adenovirus okay. that's uh, replication deficient, uh, and it um, it expresses the 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 spike protein I see. Uh, antigen. I see. Um, and we are we're we're also actually supporting uh, Imperial College London um, have uh, have an mRNA vaccine as well, yes. and we're uh, supporting them with their phase one at the moment, which is uh, which is great too. Um, and I think you asked about children. The, yes. I think the only study that is recruiting children is the Oxford 
uh, is the Oxford study. Oh, okay. So they have uh, not young children, but I think children uh, aged, I think it's five to 12. Okay. Um, we're not well, recruiting at our site, but um, they are being recruited elsewhere to, to the phase two. I think that that's... Um... Uh, that's, uh, that's, I mean, I, 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 it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a clinical study. So I guess I, I think that that's quite reasonable. Um, and I think, but some of the dynamics you've talked about suggest that actually this is a vaccine that maybe you really do want to give it to adults first. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> honestly, it, I think kids are probably going to be pretty far down the pecking order Sure, because, you know, there's, there's, there's only really two endpoints you want to achieve. So, well, I mean, there, there's one endpoint you want to achieve is right. you want to stop people getting sick and dying. Yes. Okay. So you, there's two, but there's two ways you can achieve that. So one is give it to the people who are going to get sick and die to stop them getting sick and dying. Yes. So that's, that's the elderly. And I think that's the outcome. Everyone's, you know, waiting with bated breath to see sure. is what's the immune response sure. in, in, in old people. Yes, because, of course, yeah. you know, famously, yes, they I don't remember. do too hot. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but but we do have data from Moderna, New England Journal this week showing uh, antibody titers, uh, neutralizing antibodies, even in people like over the age of 75. I, I thought quite promising. I was impressed uh, because, yeah, classically, uh, you sometimes, uh, as we know, with with flu, you can pump them full of antigen. You're not always going to get the antibodies you wish. No, no. And then the other problem we've, you know, the other problem we know we've always got with vaccine studies is that, uh, and you know, Vinay, I don't have to talk to you about surrogate endpoints, oh, but yes. um, uh, unfortunately for, for vaccines, for efficacy, the surrogates are not great. We're, it's one of the things that we really, you yes. know, that it is a sort of a, a, a golden goose uh, <laughs> we're still chasing in vaccine studies yeah. is, is to find the surrogate that is really predictive of, of good clinical endpoints. So, well, I've you know, trying to see good news to you. We never had any good ones in oncology, but that didn't stop us. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's good to know. Yeah, it's That's, good to yeah, know. It really won't stop you, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I think seeing clinical evidence of clinical efficacy in, in older people would be great. Yeah. Uh, if it doesn't work, then what you need to do is is break the chain before it gets to exactly. older people. So you yep. just need to stop it in circulation. Yep. So, And that's, I think, really that's going to be, you know, probably first of all, uh, high-risk groups. Yep. So uh, health workers or care home workers, people who we know, uh, yeah. uh have higher, uh, you know, antibody titers from, from the first wave. So higher evidence of, uh, of previous infection. Yes. And then after that, I mean, it's probably young adults really yeah. have the, the highest evidence of previous infection. They're the ones who have been out socializing, who have, uh, you know, had to go to work through, you know, thick and thin, um, uh, and probably, yeah, young adults are going to be the way to break the transmission chain. But, you know, again, that depends on the outcomes for the vaccine. Does it just prevent people getting sick or does it really stop you, you know, having that nasopharyngeal carriage sure. to stop you carrying that virus around sure. your nose? And, uh, you know, that's the that's the other outcome that we need to see. And then there's like another kind of theoretical thing, which would be um, what if the point estimate of efficacy is far beneath what people want, but still a slightly better than zero. And so people kind of get a little excited and then you get some trigger happy nation that has lost the ability to analyze risk and benefit in a neutral manner, just saying, we're just going to give this vaccine to everybody. And, and then what you might paradoxically do with a very weakly effective vaccine is change behavior in a way that's far greater uh, than the benefit the vaccine provides because it gives people the illusion that I've been vaccinated. So now I can go, uh, I, I can go party, I can go have fun. Um, and, and you may actually screw yourself uh, really badly. Um, but thankfully, well, actually, no, well, unfortunately, I do worry there's maybe one nation on earth that's just dumb enough to do that. Um. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. Well, I mean, there's other well, there's there's other countries who have uh, 
who have started rolling out vaccines of their own mm-hmm. following just phase one trials yeah. that don't have uh, any really verifiable <laughs> data. I saw, I saw that there's choice. some um, uh, rich scientists who biohack their own vaccine and say, I'm going to give it to myself, ready to go. Yeah, that's... Uh, uh, well, there's all sorts, aren't there? There's all, all sorts, sorts. Yeah, all sorts. Um, <laughs> all right, so this was an illuminating discussion. I think, um, you know, it's really uh, good to get some 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 thoughtful, um, uh, sort of a European perspective, a, a, a UK perspective on this issue. I think it's very different um, than the dialogue in the United States. Um, and I think the listeners who listen to this, who are in the United States, will be able to detect that instantly. Um, we are, uh, uh, we are, we are, we're tearing ourselves apart here. Um, we, we have a, uh, a deeply divisive political leader, a deeply divisive, maybe 30% of people love him and, um, and 50% of people hate him. And there's all these people in between who, I don't know if they read the newspaper. Or what, I don't know why they haven't decided. They haven't, I don't know why they haven't. <laughs> I don't know who he is. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know He's why they haven't, they, haven't com- they haven't committed to a side because I don't understand anyone who's on this side. That's the one thing I, I don't understand. But anyway, this is the situation. And, and, yeah. and, um, and a lot of the public health science community, particularly the online community, very far left of center, very far left um, politically. I think far beyond the science community that's not on Twitter, I think they do sort of, they're even more of a poll um, than, than what you actually would find in the academy if you were to survey people. And, and I think it's difficult when politics and science become so deeply intertwined. Uh, I've been saying that from the very the get-go, that the risk greater than the coronavirus is the risk that one day politics and science would be indistinguishable, um, because that puts people in a very bad situation. And so one of the things I worry is that policy around school is not a thoughtful deliberation of all of these buckets, what we know, what we don't know, um, as you've articulated, but rather in the United States is a reaction to what the person on the other side says. And so if people believe that the person on the other side wants schools to open, he said as much, um, if people believe that uh, by schools not opening, it it, it will hurt his chances of reelection, they may not open schools to some degree for that reason, uh, while coming up with myriad alternative things they can tell themselves why we shouldn't open schools. And that, to me, is a deep poison, because what this guy says and what this guy thinks is irrelevant to the question. The question is, on balance, are are we doing ourselves a service by canceling, in this country, one of the few the few ladders left uh, to change people's lives, of course. A few ladders. I mean, I think in Europe, thankfully, you have a few more ladders than we do. We have, like, we're, we're down to a ladder with, like, two rungs on it, and you have to pull the rope on it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's really bare-bones ladder here. Um, and, and, and the one thing we didn't articulate, which I think, which I like to articulate, is that in addition to all of the sort of losses from closing schools that you've articulated, I think there's the other loss of what it will do for political discourse in 20 years from now, when you have a body politic, when you have a public that you have not educated or you have deprived of education, had more dropouts, um, you change political narratives. They are much more able to be swayed by some lunatic saying things that are totally wrong that that demonize you know racial and ethnic minorities that that find a scapegoat to blame for all our problems um that's something that people uh can easily be seduced by and one of the virtues of education is to give people tools in their tool bag so they can resist ideas that are just plain wrong and dumb and 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 dog whistles and and catering to the lowest common denominator and so the more we pull people out of schools the more i think we're going to 
pay that brunt on the back end when these kids grow up and start voting um, and, and can easily be swayed by, I mean, without without education, uh, how do you even process uh, all the the claims that are given to you? I mean, I think that that's, that's a very difficult loss to wrap your hands around. Yeah, precisely. And, and as you said earlier, the kids who are suffering that loss yes. are not the kids of the middle and upper classes who are, you know, whose mums don't work anyway, who are at home, they've got two laptops, and they're on yes. the zoom calls, yes. and they're, you know, they're, they're getting their private tuition and whatever, you know, the, the, the kids who are suffering that are the kids who need to get their voices heard when they're older, in, in order to change society, in order to get society to support them, you know, this is the downtrodden, you, what, what you've done is you've, you've taken you know, you're taking weapons away from people who need to fight for themselves when they're o- older. Yeah. You need to be able to go out and make educated votes and be able to engage in the system. Um, and, you know, all, all school closures really managed to do is to penalize them. Yeah. Alistair Monroe, thank you so much for talking about this. And the article is in JAMA Pediatrics. And what's the title of it? Um, ch- it's time to put children and young people first. Mm. And I think um, that's really the theme of our discussion. So thanks so much for doing this. Thanks. I'm back in plenary session, joined via Zoom by Dr. Steph Burrell. Dr. Burrell is a associate professor of medicine at Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. He is a practicing general practitioner and an expert in epidemiology, particularly around vulnerable populations. Dr. Burrell, it's a pleasure to have you here. Yeah, it, it's it's a pleasure to be here. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. I will note, I you know, I think I, I think I shared this via email. I've been shy in terms of doing media and discussions as it relates to COVID because of this intense politicization of it over the last six months. And I, I think um, I think that was a mistake. Uh, I think that I I should have kind of dealt with the blowback as many others have, and and I've and so I, I just to say, I look forward to sharing perspectives on, you know, throughout today. You decided that you're going to throw it all away here on plenary session. That's what you decided. <laughs> I think I'm going to share. I, I feel far comfortable just sharing what I think to be very much evidence-based and human rights affirming approaches. Uh, I should note uh, for specificity, I'm housed at the Center of Public Health and Human Rights in the Department of Epidemiology. So our the whole kind of genesis of our work is about the intersections of public health and human rights. And so COVID has very much in so many different ways touched public health, human rights, equity, and, and, I, and I think it should be more central to the conversation of the response. Well, I'm grateful to have you here. And I think, I think many folks were reticent in the heat of the moment, particularly when we saw how the academy handled people with sort of heterodox views on this issue. And I guess I, I don't know if I took a stand, but I took a stand for the need to listen to people who don't think what you think. Uh, and I think that's more important now than ever, uh, particularly on the issue of COVID-19, because there is no playbook. I mean, anyone who comes to you and says, I alone know the right answer to COVID-19, we have to be skeptical of that. And anyone who says that I'm for sure certain that this policy measure is a good idea or a bad idea, I mean, those people are not inserting, I think, the needed caveats that we really need to consider things that we might be missing, all the, 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 the potential benefits, the potential downsides, downsides 
you know, it's often easy to predict where the domains are. You're going to get the benefits. It's often very hard to predict all the places where you might get downsides. They can, you know, they easily fall from. Anyway, we're just going to have a conversation about, I think, many things COVID. Uh, I think in terms of a bit of additional background, um, you know, you you have a native-born bias. You were born in a nation that doesn't find itself on the list of good nations anymore. It's a nation that many of us look at and we just cross it off the map. We say, I don't even talk about that country. And that is Sweden. You've, you grew up a little bit in Sweden. You moved to Canada. You spent time in Canada. And then you've spent time in the United States. So you have a multinational perspective here with a Swedish bias. Is, is that fair to say? I think it's, you know, it's interesting that I, yeah, of course, like I'm a, I'm a Swedish citizen. I was born there. I, I, I grew up there. I had a, a faculty appointment at Karolinska um, up until 2018 and that for as an affiliate scientist for several years and have stayed closely engaged with, with many epidemiologists there. And, and so, indeed, I, I, I don't know that I would call it a bias, but I'd say an understanding. Understanding. And a, additional context. Yes. And so it's funny because I love being Canadian. I mm-hmm. love so many things about Canada and of that's a, it's a, a different conversation. I love actually working in the United States um, with all of its complexity and all of its challenges. Um, and, but it was interesting that in, in when Sweden just started being so roundly attacked as a country that has like thrown its citizens aside for its economy and, and, and all these things, it, it was, you know, I, I did feel this kind of funny dynamic of, I want to call it like nationalism, because I've never been like, I'm only like, the only thing that I think I hold allegiance to, I hope is like, rights, family, like, trying to be a good person. Yes. But I did feel this kind of strange dynamic where people were so confident about like their understanding of Sweden, a place that like, they've never been to that like, like, you know, on the right and Fox News, the only thing that I remember the last time it made this much news was like no go zone. Yes. <laughs> and places that like, you know, that this is a, a country that has like disintegrated under its perspectives of socialism and, and sort of social capital's beliefs. Um, so let's that yeah. it was it, yeah. it was amazing to me that it just it just became such a flashpoint. It did. Yeah. I mean, Sweden, which is your view, uh, a failed state or hellscape? Those are the two options we have for this podcast. And they're the only two options. But why don't we talk about Sweden for a second? I mean, um, you know, as somebody who's been following the covid pandemic uh, closely, what do you feel about Sweden? What have been their successes, their strengths? What have been their weaknesses, their blind spots? Where and and is it is it still too early to judge them? You know, uh, you know, it's like the middle of a marathon. I think we sometimes you have to wait till the end of the race to really know how people did. Well, I think I think the last point is is the first one I'll okay. say is that like, you know, I trained as a public health practitioner. I, you know, was like remotely connected to the SARS uh, epidemic as it happened during my training. I've been, uh, I had a much closer view of uh, H1N1, much closer. Uh, I had a, a relatively close understanding of, of the play out of, of the Ebola, uh, mostly I should say epidemics across Western Central Africa and, and the very limited um, infections that happen abroad and Zika, et cetera. Th- this is the first one where we've ever, like there's a few firsts here that yes. I think are, are, are important. One, I don't. I can't think of the last time we used models in real time. I mean, we can talk about that later. But I, but this idea that we're judging success or failure, I think, as an oncologist, it's it's that same language where people are like the fight against cancer. I'm like, but 
that it's just like a, it's just a misnomer, and, and the framing is a problematic framing to begin with because nobody wins in a pandemic. Like everybody loses, and and so I think that that's important. I, and and then absolutely this idea of like real time judgment is is so problematic and so harmful actually because it has us chasing indicators as compared to comprehensive responses. So I've, you know, and I look forward to talking about that. Yeah. In in Sweden in particular. I've, you know, the one thing I'll just say is, as a, like a, just to frame this conversation, and it's not a bias, it's just my own reality and my own truth, which is that, like, everybody that I know and love, except for my dad, is in Sweden. Like, my mom and all my family that's still alive, they're all in Sweden, and there's nowhere else that I would have wanted them to be during this time. Really? And there's nowhere else that they would have wanted to have been during this time. I see. And, and that I think is, is like, I, I, you know, that, that's just my own reality. Now, wh why do I feel that way? Um, you know, COVID has affected different folks in different ways across a range of dynamics that we already understood to be the case for respiratory infection. Yes. The idea of inequities is not new. Yes. And, and for respiratory infections, whether it be influenza um, or, or others, and, and there's in, in vaccination hasn't fixed those. If there's anything, actually, sometimes it's reinforced those disparities, exacerbated them. Yes, and absolutely. And 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 so you know, when I looked at the Swedish response and the way that I would hear this discussion of like trying to understand like where infections were happening, and then trying to respond to those rather than sort of prophylactically like shutting down everything trying to make sort of targeted and, and responsive um, interventions, I think was, was very much in line with my training. And, and so again, my training was like five years of practice training, you know, infectious diseases, environmental management, um, chronic disease, non-communicable diseases, et cetera. And, and, and all of that time in ID has very much been focused on like, how do we understand who's at risk, why they're at risk, and then how do we develop meaningful interventions to address that risk? So, you know, what have been notable successes? Well, notable successes have been about trying to sustain social services and other healthcare services in the context of a pandemic. Such as kind schools, such as, yeah. That's right. So, I mean, it's, we could talk about schools later, well, but yeah, absolutely, we'll talk about later, like, yeah. in, in, in the pandemic playbook, like closing schools was, was a, a, an intervention of last resort. And I, and I think that's been the sort of, uh, that's been the thought and, and the strategy throughout. But, but I'll say that, you know, it has been about trying to understand where disparities exist. So, for example, they identified that taxi drivers were at the highest risk, the mm -hmm. high exposure occupation. It's a high risk occupation. It's an occupation, uh, you know, not, you know, that doesn't employ the most wealthy in society and sure. the highest socioeconomic sure. folks in society. And so they rapidly saw that, you know, People like the old rules in Sweden were that you could have paid leave from the second day yes. of being unwell. Well, they, they quickly changed it to like paid leave from the first day. Encourage folks that are sick to not work. Yes. Like that is fundamental and ensure that they can still eat, yes. which is another fundamental need as you know, in, in our Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Um, they saw very quickly that, you know, people in more dense living environments in more dense parts of Stockholm, for example, were at high risk. And that was true, you know, among folks who are more recent immigrants, not among all immigrants to Sweden, but especially among more recent immigrants. And so, you know, they really worked to try to figure out like housing, you know, 
supports, et cetera, to allow folks in these multi-generational households to try to, you know, minimize that mortality. And, and I think that was a success. Um, in, in, you know, it was, it's like a failure and a success. Again, like nobody wins. Like even that the term success feels like a, a problematic framing. I think yes. it was an effective intervention. Okay. Maybe that, that okay. feels, that feels more appropriate to me. The, you know, the place where I think there have been clear failures and I think, you know, understanding failure as like a function, both of like pre-existing context as well as failed intervention. Because I will tell you, I believe that like a lot of the disparities that we've observed are old, pre-existing oh, yes. disparities, oh, yes. very old. Yes. Racism, capitalism, all these things that yes. result in people being at high risk. But, you know, in for long-term care facilities, in particular in Sweden, yes. they have for-profit facilities. Yes. And for-profit facilities, just as a nature uh, of of being for profit tend to have, you know, lower staff ratios, lower paid staff, higher density within them. And in Ontario, there's been a really nice study to show that there's a clear relationship yes, between, between the, mortality and, and the profit, and profit status of the profit yeah. status. Was that health right. affairs paper or something? Yeah. Yeah, there was a C-match paper. It was Nathan Stahl and, and their whole group that yeah. have done a couple pieces, one on density and one on, on profit status. Okay. And, and so I think that, you know, there was a clear dynamic there in terms of understanding those pre-existing contexts and like what differences may exist between Sweden and Norway when Finland, for example, in that, even though they're, you know, Nordic countries and they share a lot, you know, how are those rules different? Because it turns out that they are. And, and I, and I look at this as like, you know, there was an outbreak in the very facility where like my grandparents lived out the end of their lives and, and how tragic it would have been for me if that would have happened to my family, I mean, they, they, you know, they died years ago, but just the thought that it happened in that facility is an obvious failure. And it's, and, and the question is, at what point did the failure happen? Yes. Was the failure and the lack of investment in public health infrastructure and safety and, 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 and caring for the elderly among us just historically throughout society? And then how is that compounded based on like not moving fast enough to optimize IPAC, like infection prevention and control, cohort staff, ensure that staff aren't moving from like sure. facility to, to facility, to facility right. to facility, to home-based care, to facility, which is very much at least the, set, the setting in, in Ontario, which is just that people, like when they've tried to do contact tracing, the amount of vulnerable people that some of these folks have had contact with is like, it's unbelievable. And I think that represents a failure that I think compounds the underlying, you know, pre-existing failures. So, I mean, I guess I guess this is something that I'm, Sweden grappled with, but we weren't free of it as well in the United States. We sent oh, COVID patients not. in nursing homes to New York, in New York City back to nursing homes. Uh, COVID in a nursing home is like a heat-seeking missile. I mean, that's a very deadly, very deadly pandemic. It's a different, it's, it's a different beast entirely. And I'm reading statistics that say even to this date, we're talking about 40% of the casualties in this country were from a facility, uh, a, a living facility. Uh, it's catastrophic. Um Sweden succumbed to some degree to the same error, Canada as well. I mean, are there is there any nation that quickly re realized uh, that that was a, a unique vulnerability and took appropriate safeguards? Was there any place on earth? Well, I think that like in, you know, Canada, just like the U.S. are diverse, obviously. And, and I think there have been places. So, you know, British Columbia specifically immediately focus on long-term care facilities okay. immediately. And, and, and a number of my colleagues and friends were like, this is exactly their priority. 
and they started, you know, optimizing services within them. And I'll say even within the, you know, I work clinically uh, within a facility that is 65 and older homeless folks. Yeah. So this is like a place that like we would have expected COVID-19, as you said, whether heat seeking missile, like extreme levels of mortality. And, and we just started intense interventions from like day one and, and talk about those. But the idea being, I was always like protect, it's called Scarborough Village Residence, like protect SVR, protect SVR. And everything that I was starting to get involved with more from a public health side was always about protecting the folks that I was serving clinically. Yes. Because it was ex- this exact fear that like a kilometer up from it on the same road, there'd been a massive long-term care outbreak with extreme mortality. And the same all around it. It's in a particularly kind of, you know, disenfranchised part of the city. And the whole feeling was like, protect it, protect it, protect it, and do everything that we can from day one, like early in, in March uh, to do that. And, and now we're having kind of continued public health, you know, meetings around it to ensure that that response is in place. But, but it's absolutely, I think, and in the States, we've seen great examples. In Maryland, there was a, a facility that, uh, that served predominantly uh, African-American folks uh, and was managed by folks within the community. And there's just a lot of pride and ownership of this facility. And it had no mortality. I see. And, and it shows that, you know, if you invest in, obviously financially, but if you invest financially and you care, you can, you can achieve this. And I'll say one more example from Toronto was there was a long-term care facility and then like a long-term care residence. Um, that were co uh, that are co-located, but have that are operated separately. Like one's for profit, one's not for profit, but they're literally co-located, kind of with a shared office. And on the one side, they had like intense infection con- prevention and control, and they brought in the hospitals to help them, and they had no mortality. And in the facility that is connected to it, you know, physically connected to it. It was like 75% of the folks uh, became cases and, and, and a tremendous amount of mortality. So what it says is with targeted interventions, yes. you can yes. achieve yes. you know, yes. the positive outcome, which yes. is avoiding mortality. But it means specifying your intervention, spending money associated with where risk is. And, and when you, you know, this has sort of been this message of when we wrote this paper back in March, just to say that when you try and serve everybody, you just serve nobody. Yes. And, and you know, that that is the risk, that it's not just, well, it'll be like a trickle-down intervention. We hear this all the time. Protect some folks, and you'll protect their downstream folks. And I'm like, when does trickle-down anything ever work? <laughs> it doesn't. It does. Trickle-down economics doesn't work. I'm still, waiting for my, I'm still waiting for that trickle. Um, That's right. So, so I guess, so you would say that there are some who say that any strategy must protect us all and strategies to i mean there have been some vocal proponents including some prominent people in this administration saying that you know we need uh, not a one-size-fits-all solution perhaps young people should have more freedom more mobility older people people at risk should take more precautions you're saying that that prima facie is not off the table it is something to consider potentially something to do to some degree there are of course limitations is that how you'd put it yeah, I mean, I'll just I'll, I'll say a few things. So one is, yeah, absolutely. I, I never believed in a one size fits all intervention strategy for anything yeah. as it relates to public health. I've, I've never seen it before. And I can say within HIV, this is a common discussion. And it's actually like the body of my work has been to counter the idea that everybody's at equal risk because 
across sub-Saharan Africa, there's this assumption that everybody's at the same risk for HIV, and it's fundamentally untrue. It's not evidence-based. It's based on pre-existing stigmas and a lot of dynamics. But the work has been about delineating that so that you can serve people appropriately. Yes. So it was those very same kind of perspectives of like, everybody's like, how are we assuming that risk is evenly distributed when of course it isn't? Of course it isn't. And, you know, I, sort of throughout this, I felt like the rich have been spectators to this pandemic. Like they've watched it on their screens and they've watched it through their windows as they're waiting for their food to be delivered. But it has been like, you know, just like a spectator sport and, yes. and then going on Twitter and talking about it. Well, and, I think that's and, part I think that's part of it is that those many people who are in a prominent position to push for certain types of interventions, they themselves do not bear the brunt of those interventions um, a, a, in terms of the price. But why don't we talk for a second about, um, you know, I, I want to bring I mean, because I, I before we know it, our time will be gone. And I want to talk. I want you to flesh this out for me. The schools issue. I think I, I I want you to just take it on head on. Um, you know, this is a very divided country. There's no one school system. I mean, I think that's the other challenge. There are private schools, there's charter schools, there's public schools, there's daycares. Um, we are doing sort of an unprecedented experiment in this country right now. Every day, there are kids um, who are not uh, in person in school. There, uh, some of them maybe on Zoom. That might not be equally distributed. I guess I'm trying to get a sense of how do you. With your background, how do you weigh the relative risks and benefits of having them go in person with those downstream effects of potential transmission among kids, transmission to adults, transmission to, you know, somebody was telling me uh, poor kids are more likely to be multi-generation household. I said, I, I don't doubt that that's the case, but I, I wonder what the absolute numbers are. Um, uh, how, do you, how do you weigh that against the, the other side of the equation, which is um, you take some kids, not all kids, but poor kids, but uh, ethnic minority kids, um, uh, racial minority kids, and you, you take them out of school preferentially. What does that do for them, for society, for the fabric of, of who we are and 20 years from now? So how are you thinking about this, this unprecedented equation of weighing all these things in your mind? Sure. Can I, can yes. I just also just take no. us back to one, yes. one comment just about adaptive interventions before? Yes. And so I felt, you know, I, I kind of went around the block and I, I, I never got to the point. The point is, I believe that there are ways of stratifying needs across a number of different ways, but sort of two primary determinants. One is individual level risks mm -hmm. and of morbidity and mortality. And the second is like, what is somebody's immediate network? Yes. And I do not believe it to be not infeasible to effectively kind of prioritize folks that either have an immediate risk, but irrespective of age, actually, like we know much more now than just age in terms of prioritizing individual needs. Yes. So it's beyond age, but also somebody's immediate network. That if you were to say that like somebody is in a multi-generational household, I might spend more for you. I might provide you a better housing solution, right. a better paid leave, right. et cetera, right. Right. from day one because of that downstream infection. Yes. So I just want to say that even though I don't believe in like just like age as like a, a, as a single determinant, I do believe that there are ways to adapt interventions to address needs. And so I just want to say that, and I think that it, it, to me it feels like a failure of the imagination to say that because we can't do that, that we have to lock down as a whole. Yeah. The the thing that the only thing that scares me more than like the idea of a of a uniform intervention for heterogeneous needs is the idea of like a targeted lockdown. I, and I just I want to make this point because it's at at its core, it's something that actually like 
keeps me up at night because we've seen this now happen in Madrid. So it went from being hypothetical to, to actually being real, which is that you take areas of a city that are only at risk because of these pre-existing inequities, higher density living, essential workers, etc., and then you lock down only those areas. And and I, and I don't even know how it works. Do you let them out to like deliver food and serve the needs of the rich, or do you get little passes and then run back to their areas where they're locked down? Like it's so unjust. And and public health doesn't have to you know. Can't, I just say this, like respecting human rights and doing effective public health are not mutually exclusive. In fact, they are perfectly aligned mm -hmm. almost every one of the time I've ever seen. I've never been given an, an example where we can't respect people's human rights while also doing effective public health. And so how does that relate to schools? You know, schools as a uniform intervention, um, you know, the data were just released today, for example, among incidents among, among those under 21. And we know that, you know, folks, you know, related to centuries of structural racism and, you know, dynamics that, that, you know, young folks that are racialized communities are much higher risk. And so that's just and that doesn't even keep into account the income disparities that probably exist among non-Hispanic white folks that are, are there. So I just, you know, as a, you know, as, as an, an element around incidence, the same was shown on, on mortality, that it was extreme. Eighty percent of those who have died under 21 in this in, in this country, in the United States, uh, were racialized communities, which is just an astounding figure that should shame us mm. as a country. Mm. The when we think about interventions, like why don't we spend some time to understand why that is? Yes. What is the dynamic that it's happening and how do we address those needs? Yes. My guess is that I probably like, you know, am, am definitely not aligned. I, I don't know. I could imagine I'm not aligned with this administration in the sense that <laughs> sure. I would like to address underlying inequities that I believe structural racism is, is at the heart of so many public health failures across the country. Yes. That I would like to try to figure that out and, and address it. But I surely, you know, I think that uniform interventions do nothing about that. It only reinforces those disparities. And then targeted lockdowns where you say, well, I'm only going to close schools in areas with high incidence is like, is, is, is like a perversion of public health. This is not what public health does. This is not who we are. Because it punishes and, uh, the and, poor and, 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 and minorities. Absolutely. And I'll just say like a few kind of like comforting, it's, you know, there's sort of been this feeling of like, let's move away from hypotheticals. Like we know enough now, eight months into this pandemic that we can move away from hypotheticals. So going back to Sweden as a data point, it was really interesting that in Stockholm for those over 70, living with a working age person yes. was associated with a significant increase in mortality. Yes. Living with somebody under 16 yes. was not. Yes. Yes. And by the way, kids under 15 and under stayed in school throughout this pandemic. And friends of mine, physicians, clinicians, public health specialists, thanked every one of their stars that that was the case because they had no idea what they were going to do other than rely on their parents to help with childcare sure. if that was going to be the case, if that was going to change dramatically because you can't just like organize childcare in a matter of days or weeks. You have to rely on the resources available to you, which is what happened in Spain and other settings where people just immediately relied on folks over 70, which is the exact thing we would want them not to do. 
the as it relates to schools, I think that absolutely like when we think about like internet access, devices, like good studying spaces, having your own room where the kid can learn in. Like I could list ten different determinants that are along a socioeconomic radiant that favor the rich as it relates to schools. Never mind that certain private schools, you know, got waivers to stay open, yes, including that's what the I'm schools saying. Yeah. where, like, yeah, where Governor Newsom's kids are. Yes. And so you have this dynamic. And my my guess was almost like the public health form of insider training, insider trading, was that like the moment these decisions were being made about closing schools. Everybody in that room started like texting and messaging and figuring out how they were going to get their kids educated during this time and until they like released the news to the world and, and figured out how their own kids were going to be okay. Because I'll, I'll say, and I think this is something that I sort of, I tried to understand for a long time, like why, why are people's perspectives to COVID-19 so different yes. than uh, to other infectious diseases? And and obviously every bug is new and every bug is unique. And But it's also that I think that it's the closest that a lot of epidemiologists have ever come to the bugs that they study. I just That's just a dynamic that I think a lot of us work on things that don't really come that close to us. The folks that do have lived experiences, by the way, are normally better researchers because they do have some understanding of what it means to be asked to do an intervention or you know, what it means to be at risk for uh, for something and, and how that affects your well-being and your health. But I think many of us study things that have never come close to us, and this might be the closest that it's come. Mm-hmm. And the same often for clinicians, that I think the amount of fear is us, you know, for those of us, you know, providing in-person services, it is scary. Like, you know, we set up this facility um, back in March, and it is scary going into that facility, knowing that folks first were under investigation and then were confirmed COVID cases, although well enough to be outpatients. Um, you know, you're kind of dealing with this new bug. And, you know, it is scary about bringing it home and not knowing exactly how to act, et cetera. But I do think that that has at least been part of it is, is like the idea about separating out, protecting ourselves as compared to sort of like what's best for society as a whole. Yes, I think. And I think only when we make the decisions of like what's best for society as a whole, do I think that we get closer to kind of making like, if you could think of like the right decision or like the optimal decision. But just to sort of finish the conversation on school, I think we should be thankful that kids are not at high risk. Obviously for H1N1 they were. And, you know, schools were closed because they were at high risk and higher risk than other folks. And the decision was made, it was like an alignment of risk and benefit. There was risk to them and, and the benefits they lost were also to them. Yes. Here we've made decisions with the perception that kids are vectors. Yes. And we have to only make the decision for society as a whole rather than kids' needs. And, and I think increasingly we are going to have to live with that as a society. I think we should be ashamed. I'm ashamed. I am deep, like, I'm deeply ashamed and, uh, about how quickly we were to say, well, there's just no choice. We have to close them. There's going to be these downstream infection events. And what kids want to kill their grannies? Well, nobody. No kids want to kill their grannies. So how do we prevent that from happening? How do we then, then, then like, let's deal with the underlying issue rather than these blunt interventions? And, and I'll just say, like, I, you know, I've always thought of, like, public health as a service industry. I've thought that because it was taught to me. 
It is a service industry. Understand your customer, try to figure out what their needs are, and then address those needs. And, you know, we've kind of moved ahead and we've gotten ahead of that where we are like an enforcement industry. And I, I worry gravely about what the long-term consequences of that are going to be in terms of like engagement for like this generation of university students in public health programs over the next 15 or 20 years. Engage, and maybe everybody says, oh, it doesn't matter because we saved their lives now or we saved society now from this extinction level event. But I think it does matter. I think that we, you know, we have to think about, as you noted, like the immediate and the downstream consequences of our decisions. And, and there are risks across the board. Yes. Immediately and downstream. And downstream. I mean, I guess when, when I, I mean, I think that the fact of the policy decision around schools is, you know, I surveyed some people informally who I know who are doctors and they, so they have money and they know how to get things through. Their kids are all in school. I was like, they're like, oh, well, you know, it would, be, it would be terrible for kids not to be in school because I don't know what I would do. Thankfully, my kids are going to the private school. And, and that's the thing about Wealth. I mean, and I, you know, I don't, and I, and of course, I also want to be very clear. I do not blame them for pushing very hard to get their kids. Everyone will do everything for their kids. That's the logical. You want them to do that. The question is, these kids that we're pulling out of school are the poor kids. They're the minority kids. They're the kids that no one is, and and they're the kids in this asymmetric battle, which is, um, teachers in strong unions may have a good argument to suspend the schools or do it Zoom. The kids in those places who most need the schools might not have are the least vocal, least able to push for for what might be best for them. Um, some of the challenges that that you talk about are, I mean, one of the things that I've gotten, you know, I did a whole episode on schools where it had this kind of bent that this is probably, in my view, I think it might be the, the single ga- greatest catastrophe of all of this is that it was one thing in March to say schools are over tomorrow because we didn't know the uncertainty bounds were massive uncertainty was through the roof and so i'm incredibly forgiving of all those decisions the question is in august september november sorry october november when people are trying to launch schools there's a huge pushback against it the idea is that you know is it the case that schools will increase the the death toll i guess that's one question is it true that it'll increase the short-term death toll and 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 then the next question is, does it increase the long-term death roll to close the schools? Those are my two questions. Yeah. So I mean, I think I think to your first point, you know, people of means were always going to figure out yeah. how to be comfortable throughout this pandemic and how to ensure that all of their needs were met. And and I, I say this by the way, recognizing like I'm of means, and it, it it was absolutely the case for us as well. Like as this was happening. This pandemic just hasn't been that bad for us. The, the only thing, you know, I mean, like the, the, it just, and, and I know that that to be the case for like everybody down our street, that like the thing that enrages me is how comfortable it's been. It's, you know, and, and sure, like life has changed. Like I said, I used to travel 200 days a year and now I don't travel anything, but like, that's fine. Maybe I needed a break anyway. Sure. You know, and <laughs> so like, but I'm still being paid. I'm still like, I still have all the comforts available to me. We can have food delivered to us. We can be comfortable, all of those things. People of means were always going to figure out how to ensure that they were okay during this time. I think what has saddened me the most has been that like as a society, you know, we are only as happy and as comfortable as like those most marginalized are happy and are comfortable. 
And in the long term, that's critical because in the long term, that's what breeds, you know, like a, a happier setting, you know, and, and generally more well-being. And I think what, what breeds things around increased discomforts and more concerns around disparities and crime and all those things is not paying attention to the needs of those around us. And when I say needs, like the most central needs, like leaving Maslow aside, the most central needs are healthcare and education, healthcare and education, you know, and, and I've always sort of thought when people ask me, well, you know, often I'm in Central Africa and West Africa and people are like Canada and the US, they're identical. And, and, and I'll, you know, and I, that's fine. I, I, what, what I'll often say is the two central differences between the two countries are about the access of healthcare and the access of education, you know, and, and to, to people across. And, and that, those fundamental differences, I think, are at the heart of like almost everything else, personally. I mean, obviously a simplification, but nonetheless, from my perspective. The schools as a whole, the access to education, I think, represents the most important social welfare, social well-being intervention that a government can provide. It is what pr provides upward mobility for folks that have been historically disenfranchised. It is the only thing that we can rely on that allows and, and encourages equity. So at, when you ask the question, like long term, I, it's, I think it's great. I think because if you just, you just play this out, that people don't have access to the same jobs in a setting where if you have employer-based health care, they don't have access to the same health care. They can't uplift their, you know, their families and themselves. And you just never kind of get over this hurdle of getting to the sort of like middle class, more comfortable lifestyle, which has a number of downstream health benefits, irrespective of, of whether it be related to healthcare access. And so that is absolutely the case. And in the short term, I think we have so much data from settings where they didn't close to show that there just wasn't a relationship between keeping schools open and large scale kind of community level morbidity and mortality. And, you know, it was, I know nobody, it was so interesting when the science article came out uh, in uh, early June. Yeah, I remember. Uh, and they, you know, what, what about leads schools. to changes now? Yeah. Mm hmm. That's right. Like, what can we learn from yes. schools? And they talked about all these countries. And, and, and then there was an article like, well, I wish we could have learned something from Sweden. I'm like, well, this is so interesting to me because Sweden put out a study showing like teachers who are at no higher risk. Yes. In fact, the only, so, you know, school stayed open till the age of 15. The only teachers that were at lower risk were teachers that worked from home, like high school teachers, mm -hmm. because that's, of course, of course, you know, and students, you know, were at no, first of all, there was, there was no deaths, fortunately, and 1.8 million students that remained in school. And there just was no increased risks. And so that, that to me is like real world data is always more powerful than hypotheticals. And I understand, I, I agree with you that like initially when you don't know, you make a decision based on precautionary principles. Sure. But I think, you know, what we wrote in March, and I think is true now, is, is that like you have to move on from the precautionary principle. Yes. It can't be like your crutch for every argument in for, that you really, you know, that you come across in public health. Well, you never, you don't know, so we can't do it. The reality of the precautionary principle is, is actually two things. One is exactly as you said, it balances precaution of like the intervention versus not, but also the harms of doing the intervention versus not. Closing schools is an intervention of actually unknown benefit and significant harm. 
And I think when you use that framing, yes. you know, it actually changes your perspective. And when you look at, you know, schools in particular, like if you're only looking at it in, in isolation, like does it avoid any harms? Well, sure. If there was no downsides to it, like, of course, it probably avoids some infections. Sure. But just by and large, it's associated with so many harms that it's just not, you know, the evidence just doesn't support it. You know, I've long developed a theory of medicine. I've said it on this show many times, but I don't expect you have listened to all the episodes, a lot of episodes of the show. My theory of medicine is that um, there are two types of things we offer in healthcare. There are commodities that consolidate wealth in the hands of fewer people, and there are services that spread wealth to more people. So some examples, if I make a titanium nickel gizmo that I shove in your whatever you want and I tell you it's going to do whatever you want it to do. I can get FDA approval with a 30-person study, some surrogate endpoint. I can shove it everywhere I want to shove it and I can pay the doctor for shoving it in and I can make a lot of boatload of money from my device and I laugh and then I talk about how I'm an innovator and that's something that consolidates wealth in very few people's hands, the shareholders' hands, the starting people's hands. The same thing for these cancer drugs that I rail about on this show that add a week of survival in an ideal setting and zero days of survival in the real world, but they cost 200 grand a year. I can always get those. Then the same patient, I say, can somebody go to this guy's house and help him clean his laundry and do some dishes in his house and help this guy who's dying of cancer? Oh no, can't get that service in this world. So the services I can't get, someone to pick up my patient from their house, someone to go help my patient who's dying of cancer with their household chores, someone to help them get their finances in order, somebody to drive them to their appointments and help them keep their schedule, somebody to, these, these human services I can never get. I can never get. And that's because the human services require you to hire a lot of people and pay them a living wage and it spreads wealth out. And so my grand theory of healthcare is that we have created a system that consolidates wealth into the hands of fewer people because that's a reinforcing system in our lobbyist world. And, and that is my critique, I think, of medicine broadly. In COVID, there's an analogy, which is we were willing to do all of the things that don't hurt or inconvenience those of us with means, and we're not willing to do any of the things that would benefit those with nothing. And so it's easy to say lockdown countries, but when you have a billion people in India who will starve, it's easy to say, you know, do these things. But when you have poor children who are going to be at home, sometimes with people who are sexually and physically abusing them, who will have no one, no one will knock on their door and check on these kids. And we're going to hear for decades, we're going to hear stories about kids who were abused in this time and no one helped me. No one came. Thoughts? You know what? I, yeah, I mean, so I, I, I have a few things to say. One of them is, uh, maybe I'll just start with the piece around evidence. Because one of the things I heard, one of the things I, I'm hearing, maybe even, maybe it's just because I'm, I'm sort of personalizing your comment, which is there's often like a different level of evidence needed when we want to serve folks more yes. marginalized than when, when we want to serve folks that are sort of like, I don't know, either they're like, they're better, like society has deemed them more Deserving. Uh, valuable, yeah. Yeah. deserving. Thanks. And um, so we deal with that a lot. And, 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 and it actually, like, I had so much time, such a tough time trying to understand this that I actually like started getting into the evidence literature and I've been working in it for like the last 10 years, like publishing and trying to understand like how do we grade evidence and why have, why has it, why have we kind of, it ended this way that like we end up using these evidence systems that really kind of favor certain interventions, often clinical interventions compared to more public health interventions. 
And, you know, and, and so I'll just say that, like, the systems even in place of how we grade evidence and how the USPSTF and, and others make decisions um, often benefit, you know, those of means with clinical interventions as compared to those that are more sort of real-world learning, et cetera. But I'll say two things, you know, as it relates to COVID-19 specifically. So, you know, when I've thought about this intervention, I've had this, like, thought experiment some some months ago where I was like, if I designed and I was going to do a Twitter thread and I thought, you know, it's almost like one step too far. But if I was to design an intervention only for the rich, only for the rich, I would do tons of testing. I would lock down and close businesses unless I needed them. You know, so I would definitely keep like Amazon and food delivery and certain restaurants, all these things open. You need to make sure that mm-hmm. internet service tech, you know, like I was thinking the ISPs, the internet service providers kept working. I could access tech. You know, I'd be working on a vaccine and I would be focused on testing extremely like, you know, testing new innovations, testing coverage, all these things without really an intervention to respond to the results of those tests. Because I don't care, as long as it kind of takes them out of the, like it decreases the chance that they're going to be the ones delivering food to my door, Yes. Um, then, then I'm kind of happy. And, and it was just interesting, like as I did this thought experiment yes. of like, if I design an intervention only for the rich, yes. it's exactly the intervention we have, yes. the set of intervention strategies that are most commonly yes. implemented yes. in many parts of the world. Yes. So I'll say a few things. One is testing. You know, it's so interesting because within STIs, within sexually transmitted infections, like obviously testing is at the heart of what we do. But it is also because, you know, there, it's easier to, you know, allow people to react to the results of that test. Like the test is only as powerful as somebody has the ability to react to, to the results of it. So for sexually transmitted infections, you can tell them, first of all, you offer them for, for curative ones. You can offer them, you know, antimicrobial agents. You can tell them to use condoms. You can tell them to decrease their number of sexual partners, etc. For respiratory infections, I'm always asking folks, well, okay, you've diagnosed them. And of course, we're educating them. I mean, we've been testing folks for months, but like, what are we offering folks? What are we giving them in order to, you know, decreases the, decrease the risk of onward transmission to those most vulnerable? And, and I think the point you made earlier is that when you try and advocate for that, People are like, oh, there's no money. There's no money. Sorry. Right. Right. You know what I mean? Like exactly. supportive services, supportive housing, yes. paid leave. They're like, oh, we couldn't possibly afford it. I'm like, we've literally, like, society has failed. Do you know what I mean? Society is crumbling all around us. Yeah. And yet we don't want to make some investments, the margins for, yeah. like, undocumented folks, yeah. you know, lower income folks, those with unstable housing, et cetera. Like, that to me is, is amazing. I mean, that is just truly like it, it just and it wakes me up at night. Yeah, I, I literally I mean, I, I know a lot of people have had these like pandemic insomnia. Like, yeah. I keep being woken up at night by these like just like how crazy it all is. The second thing is I would really, you know, the, the idea that's the immense investment in vaccine development. Of course, like I want a vaccine. Of course I do. And I've been waiting as it relates to HIV. Like I've, I've worked on HIV vaccine trials. I'm excited by the technology. But the, the, the sort of the, the sheer investment in vaccines compared to other interventions for COVID-19 is awing to me. Mm. That we've spent, as we as in society, I as a taxpayer, billions, billions of Tens dollars. of billions. Yeah, just in, just in warp speed, just in no, subsidies. Warp, all yeah. of it. That's yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. Never, just that's that. Right. Yeah. 
never and and yet we I, I can't imagine that we've spent millions in terms of really at the ground level at state and this isn't yeah. by the way just the federal government but no no it's state, a state local municipal everything. state local public health agencies addressing kind of like transmission needs and for like that's not the case for like other infections like it's not this sort of like vaccine or bust mentality but it is here and i think that is further testament to like our lack of like willingness to really engage in like the underlying structural inequities that are driving this thing and i'm when i say that i mean even really talking about it never mind then actually thinking about what to do about it it just feels like i've I've had people say to me they're like well you're gonna let you know you're gonna let people die just to ensure equity i'm like no these things are in line it's actually by addressing equity that we save lives unless you're only talking about saving rich lives then of course we're back to where we started where it's like do do that intervention strategy we just talked about well i mean two more additional pieces of data that support i think your broader argument one in the united states I heard there is little appetite to do controlled clinical trials of older drugs. We want to do, it has to have a MAB in it. If we don't have a MAB in it, we don't want to test it. So they're testing dexamethasone over here. We're doing remdesivir and some mimimimimab. Mimimimimab, that's what we want to test, branded products, of course. So when it comes out, you can charge $25,000 a dose. Monoclonal? Monoclonal, yeah. Instead of convalescent plasma, we want some No, I know, I know. And then the other piece is the bailout bill for small businesses, which was meant to preserve income of average people. But of course, the money wasn't giving to average people. That's a simple, direct way to help people who are struggling. God forbid we do that. We gave $500 billion to people who employed less than X number of people who said, I'm not going to fire anyone. And there's some really elegant work by Raj Chetty that shows the groups that pocketed that money, doctors, uh, small d- doctors practices, groups like that. Um, there were groups that weren't going to fire anyone anyway. And the groups right. that didn't pocket that you know, and the groups that they wanted to fire people, they're not going to take that money. So it was a $500 billion giveaway to people who already have a lot of money. That's the nature of our policy. We'll spend $500 billion, not save a single job. And you ask for basic money to provide support for homeless populations that is ravaging, nursing homes that nobody cares about. You know, I mean, we have neglected old, I mean, that's the thing that always blows me away. I was like, none of, few people have been to nursing homes, but as medical students, we spent time in nursing homes. And as a resident, I spent time at nursing home. If you want to see a society, what it really values and who it decides to push aside and doesn't care about, spend some time in some nursing homes and you'll see. And, 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 and so it was no surprise to me that a place that's chronically starved of resources, that the staff's morale is low, that are underpaid, poorly treated, um, that we have cast aside is a place that's going to be decimated by a virus. And what investments have been made there to make that better and safer? Yeah. I, I, so just to reinforce yeah. your point, which is so... This, was so striking. It didn't make a lot of news, but it was so striking. So when we were at the height of the pandemic in Ontario, the provincial government brought in the military to help in long-term care facilities, to help with IPAC, etc. When that program ended, these are military folks yeah. left with such extreme PTSD of what they saw hmm. in those facilities hmm. that they the program ended. And they left just saying that what they saw was unspeakable, hmm. and that they had never in all their time, these are folks that have been to, been you to know, war. Yeah. Afghanistan and all these places, that they had never seen anything like what they saw in those facilities, which I think many of us know working in those facilities, yeah. that that is the reality. And so we can say that we want to shield them, but yet again, we're not willing to serve them. Yeah. And, you know, so I, I, I think I think the point is, is is such an important one. It was so obvious to me. When that $500, million, $500 billion was 
released. And by the way, the same happened in so many parts of the world. Sure. All these accountants and investment consultants immediately dove pounced, into yeah. the pounced of like the exact wording, the exact things of what was allowed. And of course they phoned their folks. They're like, hey, just so you know, like we can totally apply for this. It'll be like this. You'll get about 15 grand, you know, and blah, blah, blah. And people are like, all right, 15 grand, I'll take it. Like, not that it's going to make a difference one way or the other, no, there but are, just yeah. immediately. And it was just like, of course they would, because whereas like small businesses that are like, like surviving, are they going to dig into the 200 page like PNP? Correct. That was Correct. probably like released no, with that's that right. yeah. to, to like understand how to like, never mind access the money, but like what rules would be and what the downstream consequence, like it's so set up for the rich as compared to exactly that, like understanding and doing it something simple based on income. But no, they sent like everybody got six or 1200 bucks and then 500 billion went. It's just, and I think, yeah, I think that, things that, like that, like, yeah, that, I mean, I think that's why, um, I don't know. I, I, sometimes, um, I, so I, I'm of course on, on the, on the, on the progressive left and particularly when it comes to capital, because I believe capital, the movement of capital creates so many of these problems and it's so hard a problem to wrap your mind around. It's, it's easy to be outraged by the things you see, but capital and its influence on human beings and how we live our lives and how it, 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 it plagues people, keeps people trapped in poverty, keeps people trapped in lives that, uh, that are, that they would not want for themselves. I, I think it's harder to see. And so that's always my big interest. But what, but, um, I think what, what surprised me is that folks who are politically aligned with me on those issues, they do not see what they are doing. Okay. So my last thing, I know our time is almost up. I mean, we only have like 10 minutes left. I, I have to ask you, um, this question, which is, what made you reticent a few for a while? You posted something about an article you wrote, a letter to the editor that wasn't rah 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 Sweden, but it also it was a balanced view of Sweden. You couldn't get that published in any journal. Um, what has happened to discourse in this time? Why are folks who who are like you and I, I think left of center, progressives, human rights kinds of people, we find ourselves in our own tribe being ostracized, pushed aside. Um, we're scared to even say these things that you guys are losing the sight of what really matters. Um, uh, what what happened to our dialogue? Why why were you reticent? And 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 what changed? Yeah. Yeah, I mean. So I, uh, I had some personal experiences that made me reticent. <laughs> like, I, I mean, actually, even before that letter, like, I, I started having conversations. Um, you know, I tend to not do media anyways. I've always been very comfortable talking to my peers. Yeah. Like, I love engaging with scientists. I mean, and clinically, I love engaging with the world. But, like, as a scientist, I love engaging with scientists. And to do that, we write papers and we go to conferences and we do these things. And I, and to be honest, like I've not really engaged in podcasts or Twitter or other means in terms of engaging more broadly. I, you know, as this started, I, I started just sharing like perspectives, like in, um, early March of like, I, you know, I don't understand what we're doing. I don't understand this response. And I like to think of myself like, as like, I'm a great public health practitioner. I'll just, I don't know, we should all be confident in what we do. Like, I, like, I am trained with like all the training you would ever need. Um, I've published plenty. Like I've proven my understanding of public health issues. I teach it and all those sorts of things. And I couldn't understand anything. I couldn't understand the decision-making process at all. And um, I started like people were like, you know, there was this discussion arc 
coronavirus is seasonal or not. And a reporter reached out um, and from like the, the Denver Post and Boston Globe and was like, hey, um, I think I had posted some, I, I can't remember how it came that he reached out. Maybe he just did one of these like Hopkins. We get so many of these sure. like, hey, Dr. So-and-so. You work at Hopkins, Hopkins, Dr. So-and-so. Yeah, yes. exactly. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, but I thought it was interesting because he asked about seasonality. And I said, you know, I, I said, which I continue to believe, is that like, I believe that there are seasonal and environmental elements to this, uh, to, this sure. to this virus. And I don't think that explains all of it. It was a very like, yeah. kind of basic interview of like, what does that mean? It does mean that I expect it to slow down in the places where that's more relevant in northern climates. But to also that also means that it should pick up and fall. Like it's not to say like you're nothing, it's nothing. And so I did that interview, and um, I was contacted by BBC, and they they saw it, and um, and so BBC World reached out and they asked me, and I did a very basic interview again about like seasonality of coronaviruses, i.e. seasonality of seasonal coronaviruses, you know, and um, you know just like clinically experienced, like of course they're seasonal. And there's a number of dynamics as to why, and it's well understood. And and the a producer said, so you so you align with Donald Trump? I said, I why what? I didn't even like I didn't know he was talking about seasonality. I'm like I don't listen to what Donald Trump has to say. I mean, often it's just you know it's just unless it's some sort of thing on in the Times. Yeah. But uh, you know, I so I'll just say that like then I I, I spoke to some mentors uh, at Hopkins and beyond, and they're like, you know, you need to be really careful. You need to be really, really careful about how you're perceived and how you're aligned. And while we've been encouraged to be on Twitter, there was sort of this like, like element of like, you should be careful kind of like how some of your messages are being perceived. I was so amazed by it because I've always felt very comfortable in my messaging. And it, and it shook me, actually. And it shook me for months. It just was like, I felt like I'll keep tweeting, but I'm not going to say yes to interviews. I'm just going to like kind of do my own thing. And, you know, and indeed, but throughout this time, like, of course, I'm like, I'm so left of center, like, like universal healthcare, universal yeah. education, like, I, these are like, I, you know, Canada and Sweden have formed me. And by the way, given me all the opportunity in the world. And while I love working at Johns Hopkins, because people work so hard, and they're so committed to science, like, I, I'm, I'm a product of like, where I grew up and, and all the benefits that came associated with that, uh, with that childhood. And, you know, so that's just a reality. And I found that like, I'm a subscriber to the New York times yeah. and I see them publishing articles, blaming like the outsiders. Like there was a recent article that came out and I was, I just was, it's like so shocked and so saddened that I'm like, like people importing this virus is at the margins. Like it doesn't change the fact that you need to have, effective interventions in place like sure you can shut down flights you can do testing you can do all those things but to blame literally outsiders that was the term like until they let the outsiders back in so like reinforces nationalistic xenophobic perspectives that emboldens people and i can imagine people are going to be using that in like a decade that when the times is arguing against a wall being built, like like we go through a whole new cycle of the wall, and then and then they'll say, well, the times called for us to build fences. That was literally build better fences around us. And I think that there'll be blowback. I think that the, people will say, well, you know what, you guys aren't consistent on your perspectives around rights and equity. 
when there's some other issue that we're most likely going to be aligned with many of our friends with, which is about protecting folks that are at the margin. And, and so I just worry about like, yes, now, but I also really worry about like, what does it mean for like credibility in this like forever struggle between, you know, progressive and regressive values when, when things really like went bad, we absolutely reverted to nationalistic, like rich things that benefited the rich inequity, the drove inequities. And we didn't kind of keep consistent with our language of focusing on those most marginalized. And yeah. so I, I just really worry how those arguments are going to be used against, again, like us and many of us friends and the things we stand for in the future. When we talk about things like universal health care, universal education. I think, you know? um, I mean, for, 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 for those of us um, who see this disruption, which is a cataclysmic, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a d- d- disruption of my life. I mean, and I thought I had seen it after 9-11 that that was a, I thought that was a huge disruption uh, in terms of the things it's done around the globe, sowing seeds for terrorism for another hundred years. Uh, I thought it was a catastrophic era at the time and still do. Uh, the wars that were misdirected. Um, uh, but this, I think, is just a, another order of magnitude. And what I fear more than anything is that when, you know, the thing about regressive policies is there can be, you can, you can do a lot to people regressive. You can get away with a lot, but then you, one, you push a little too hard, you're going to break something. And when you break something, people will not take it anymore. And when people won't take it anymore, there are two types of things it can lead to. It can lead to a progressive revolution where we finally implement some of these things we've been trying to implement so long, which is like real healthcare for real people without co-pays, healthcare that people don't, they're not scared to call the doctor when they're sick um education that really is guaranteed taking care of kids i don't know why we start at five the dumbest fucking thing in this country summer's off starting at five start when they're born and take care of these kids and feed them well and provide these things i mean this is the the opportunity but i fear the other side is these moments in history are ripe for the despot the tyrant the charismatic person to tell people you are hurting i feel your pain and here's why you're hurting it's the outsider it's them they're the ones who did it to you and i think it's easy to think that this guy trump is the worst thing we've ever seen he's not even close to the worst thing we've ever seen because he is not that good. I mean, he makes that's mistakes. Right, he's right. not he's disciplined. Dead. He's not that good. That's and he's and maybe he's not even that evil. He's a narcissist who gets lost in his, he uses evil as a tool for his narcissism. Imagine someone who really believes crazy shit, what they can do. They're unstoppable force for evil. And this is the condition. I mean, I'm reading a lot of history books about Europe, 1920s, 1930s. Um, th- th- these people didn't take over just because of them. It was an interaction between them and what the world was post-World War One. Oh. Um, so I'm, I, you know, and, I, and directly yeah. affected my family also. It made yes. us immigrants to Sweden yeah. and immigrants to Australia and immigrants. To, yeah, so I, I feel that in a very real way. Like that, that seeing that, I agree with you. I think that like there are there is a fear. Like there's the sort of immediate public health issue, and people can dismiss this all they want. Yeah, but people so. are being radicalized. Yeah, they're being, and you know, too. kids being locked up in their universities. Like it's it just even the most immediate thing of like their relationship with public health. Again, I sort of bring us back to like, just even like leaving out the sort of grander political radicalization that I think is kind of taking people at the margins and pushing them aside and pushing them away. But I think immediately like the relationship with public health, when public health is gonna ask them to do things in the future, I think they're, they are gonna have a tougher time making that case. And they're going to have a tougher time engaging with folks. And then you, I don't know, you, it's like the parent who like beats their child. Yeah. And then wonders once, why the child, yeah, once, once, you yeah, that, yeah. once you've hit a child, 
That's the only thing that matters after the end. Yeah. No words are irrelevant. Yeah. You yeah. can't try and empower that child and educate that child because the only thing that they're afraid of is being a hit. And that is the same dynamic that you've done here where like anything that you do after that will will seem irrelevant as compared to the like lock you down, shut you down, arrest you, you know, throw you out of school. Yeah, I saw these all the things people. I mean, just as a microcosm of that, somebody, you know, somebody without a mask enters a store and people want to call the police. And I'm like, you know, the worst thing you can do for spread is to escalate this situation because this person, you want to put this guy in handcuffs in this country where everyone's armed to the teeth. Crazy. But I guess I would say that to me, I, I don't even know if I would define it as public health. I fear that what had happened in this pandemic is, you know, when Barry Weiss resigned from the New York Times, she said um, the ultimate editor of the New York Times is Twitter. And I don't think this was public health. This was a handful of people who have a certain point of view, which I don't even begrudge them, but they took on to these these channels. They were very effective. They're very effective at reaching an audience that amplifies a certain type of signal, and that's a fear signal. That's the audience on Twitter. The people who are sitting at home all day with time to be on Twitter, they're amplifying that. They're getting huge followings. They're getting the ear of the press. They're controlling the narrative, and they're shaping policy in an outsized proportion to their real... Uh, I mean, I think I talked to so many people... To their who, experience. To their experience and their real... and their Yeah, to their experience, certainly, and to what the academy actually thinks. If you could survey professors of public health, doctors of infectious disease, they will not agree with what Twitter public health experts think. It is a really skewed, and this this Twitter led us to one president, and it led us to one public health response that are not concordant with what people actually believe and want. And this, I don't know what, this social media has got to be regulated. I don't know what to do about it. I mean, I'm the last person to want to kind of stifle anything, but um, there's something, something happened here, and it was, and, and we still cannot have this discussion on schools. I fear that this the school closure is going to continue and it's it's going to really uh, really hurt us in years to come anyway i yeah. have to run in three minutes sure. so you get the last word you get the last minute well, I mean, thank I, you so I, much you know, yeah, so, uh, yeah I, I'll, I'll just say i think one of the things that i've tried to explain to people in my very like meager twitter following of engagement twitter is to say this that like there's a difference between analytic skills and public health practice experience i believe i think you're exactly right by the way that so many folks have like written to me and that I talk to are completely of the same mindset. They recognize the pol- the politics of it and they don't want to say anything public. They need cover, etc. But we're all of them the same mindset. In fact, I've never spoken to somebody who's like, oh, I totally don't agree with that. No, the reality is that everybody does, but it is it is a group of folks that have been able to kind of like leverage analytic skills, whether it be in causal inference or modeling or whatnot, and drive policy. And, you know, there was a reason why we had folks studying policy. There was a reason why we have folks studying public health practice. And, and like, analytics are part of that process. I continue to say that it's like, like a first-year medical student. Like, when you finish first-year medical school, like, you feel like you know everything. Of course. And the reality is, like, you're probably the most dangerous person in the world. Of course. Because you know some of the language. You maybe know some of the terms, but you don't know anything. You I- are just there in order to kill people. And, and so I'll just, you know, kind of make the argument that like with practice experience, with work experience comes a humility. And if I had to sort of pinpoint one thing that has like been missing from this entire conversation it's humility. has been humility. Yeah. And I think humility is a sign of experience. And thus to me, the lack thereof has been, you know, like related to people's certainty in their position yeah, my, and their intractability to having a real discussion about it. And that to me has brought us here. 
Dr. Burrell, thank you so much for doing this. Yeah, pleasure. Nice talking to you. You've been listening to Season 3 of Plenary Session. Plenary Session is produced by Kiana Klossner. Music by Ian Straley and Audrey Tran. The views expressed on Plenary Session are those of whoever said it and no one else. Plenary Session is not medical advice. Follow us on Twitter at plenary underscore session. Until next time.